from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. church. I have the privilege of traveling quite a bit, um, both within the U.S. and internationally and worshiping with a lot of different churches. And I love God's local church, um, whether that's in Roseburg, Oregon, or Tanzania, or the Philippines, or in Chaska, Minnesota. It is just a joy to gather with God's people, to lift up our voices to him, to study and read and apply his word together. And uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but you got a good thing going here. I mean that. There's there's churches I wouldn't say that at. <laughs> I'd say that at mine. Like we got a really good thing going at my our, our church, but it's it, there's a beautiful thing happening here. Jesus is worshipped. People love each other. It seems. I'm sure there's some bickering every once in a while, right? It's a church after all. We're sinful people, but there's a good thing going here. And um, yeah, enjoy it. Praise God for it. Uh, I do bring you greetings from our church in Chaska, Minnesota, one of the southwest suburbs across the Grace Church, as well as our pastors and leaders say hello and thank you guys for your partnership, for the encouragement that we get from you. We've, uh, we both of our churches have been very involved in training pastors together. Dave was in Jordan in June of last year. Dave Quilla was in Jordan and I've been able to be at that site training those Pakistani leaders who I'm sure you have heard much about. Um, and it's a, it's a gift to be partnered with churches like this to bring training to those guys who just are so thankful for the ability to learn how to study and communicate God's word. Um, my job is actually to get to do that over and over again. So five, six times a year I travel overseas and teach, and it's just a, a joy to be with God's church and the leaders of God's church and to get into God's word with Africans or Filipinos or Pakistanis or Americans or wherever. And so Cross of Grace brings you greetings from Minnesota. Thanks you for your partnership in, in ministry together in the in the U.S. and beyond. Uh, I also bring you greetings from my family. My wife is not here. I did bring our oldest daughter. Ruby's over there, and uh, she got to come out to see Oregon for the first time. She loves the color green, so this is the place for her because Minnesota is brown, about to become white, and uh, we won't see green until May of next year. So um, she needed a little taste of that again before the calendar turned. Um, my wife and... Uh, one of our other children are at home, our other daughter, and then we have two sons in college, one in northern Minnesota and one in Phoenix. So my sons are in very different locations. Interestingly, it was warmer in Ely, Minnesota last week than it was in Phoenix. And we were, you know, group family text just kind of contemplating how in the world did this happen that the one that goes to almost Canada is in a warmer location than the one that goes to Phoenix. And there was some uh, contemplation of life decisions going on among my boys, one of whom really likes snow and one of them who really likes heat and wondering if they're in the wrong place. Um, so it's good to be with you. And I am thrilled to be able to open up the book of Habakkuk. For the record, that's how we're going to pronounce it this way. Okay. I, uh, I grew up in a little church that taught me to pronounce it Habakkuk. That's probably wrong. Um, I think I think our, our dear brother Habakkuk would forgive us for mispronouncing his name, but that's probably where we're going to land, so forgive me if it's different than you're used to. 
So you can start turning there. It'll take you a while. So before I read a verse from there, I'll, I'll, I'll spend some time uh, setting this up here. You have, as a church, been spending a lot of time in the minor prophets. Um, I think we're about halfway as a, as a, through this series. And um, I have the, the joy of preaching, I think, my favorite minor prophets between Habakkuk and Zechariah. Those are, they're all good, right? But Habakkuk, there's something about this little book that I just love. Most of you probably don't spend a lot of time reading the minor prophets, if you read your Bible at all. Churches don't spend a lot of time preaching through the minor prophets. It's kind of that forgotten little corner of our scripture that when we do go there, we're not really sure what to do with it. You know, you have that room in your house where you just kind of Things just get forgotten a little bit. And then you go in there and you're like, oh, I just, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm going to go and spend more time in the living room. Habakkuk is like that closet that you have. You're just not sure what to do with it. And it's, it's, it's called a minor prophet, like, like Joel and like Amos and these other ones. Well, why spend time on minor things, right? That doesn't seem like a strategic thing to do. You know, there's there's books like John or Romans or even if you want to be in the prophets, Isaiah, that seem, honestly, they seem a little bit more important in the Bible when you think about how much attention is paid. Well, since we're talking about the minor prophets, if John and Isaiah and Paul are the Babe Ruth and the Willie Mays and the Ted Williams of the Bible, you kind of wonder, isn't Habakkuk like some guy who just languishes in the minor leagues, like Crash Davis, who only Dave York knows, but because he's the pastor here, I have to use that illustration. In baseball, in baseball, the goal is not to spend all of your time in the minors. That is not a destination point. You want to advance to the major leagues, right? And sometimes in churches and in the Christian life, it feels like, well, you don't really want to spend time in the minor prophets. Let's go to the major books of the Bible. Uh, These are useful and these are good. And I hope you've seen that over the last five or six weeks. And I hope you will continue to see that as you advance through them. One verse that's been helpful for me in realizing this is a famous verse that Paul writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16, a verse that many of you I'm sure are familiar with and have heard before, Paul writes to Timothy and says that all Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful. Now, he says all Scripture. What is Paul referring to? He's referring to what we have as our Old Testament, including the little book that you may not have known existed called Habakkuk. Habakkuk is breathed out by God and profitable for God's church. My prayer is that you find it that way this morning. The minor prophets have unique voices, are situated at unique times in history, and are are given for specific people within specific situations in ancient history, but they're extremely relevant and applicable for us. Sometimes it just takes a little work to find out how, though. They're they're strange sometimes. Wait till you get to Zechariah. Are you doing Zechariah? All right, you got some work to do because that's that is a weird book of the Bible, but it's really really good if you can spend figure it out and study it. The prophets had a role. 
They were commissioned by God to speak God's word to God's people. That was their job. God would give a word to the prophet, like Habakkuk or like Hosea, and that prophet would then in turn speak God's word to God's people. So your, your minor prophets and, or your major prophets were, were voice piece, or mouthpieces of God. They were speaking God's word to God's people. Occasionally, a prophet also served in a priestly role where they represented the people to God. So they would bring a request or a even a complaint or a, a cry to God on behalf of the people. Why is this happening? What are you going to do? Where are you in this situation? Habakkuk serves both of those. He gives God's word to God's people, but he also represents the concerns of the people to God. And what you'll see in the book of Habakkuk is you almost have this dialogue where Habakkuk says something on behalf of the people and on behalf of himself, and then God answers. And then Habakkuk turns and says, well, what about this? And then God answers again. And then Habakkuk comes to this place of resolution at the end of the book. It's, it's, it's really a neat book. It's just structured differently than a lot of the minor prophets. It has this back and forth kind of argument that's going between Habakkuk and God. It often feels more like a psalm. Like it's, it's mostly poetry in this book. It feels more psalm-like in many of it. Or it feels like the book of Job. In fact, I, I kind of compare Habakkuk to a condensed three-chapter version of the book of Job wrestling with the problem of suffering and evil in the world. It's beautiful, though. There's crescendos, there's these amazing verses, there's this wonderful imagery, and I could easily teach a week or more, perhaps, on Habakkuk, but we don't have the time. In fact, the first time I preached Habakkuk was in my church that I pastored in Madison, Wisconsin, and I had three weeks, one sermon on each chapter. It's a good pace. Good pace walked us through that book. The second time I preached Habakkuk was at our church in Minnesota, and I had two weeks. That was a little bit more difficult. The third time I preached on Habakkuk is here, and I'm not here next week. So <laughs> buckle in, because we're going to try to cover this book in one week. And I, this one's only three chapters. Some of them are like nine or 12 chapters, so you have to handle those ones. It's profitable. It's useful for us. And let's pray before we jump into this beautiful little book. Father, your word is indeed profitable, and we ask this morning that your spirit would use it to train us in righteousness so that we can go into this world knowing you and making you known. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. All right, well, hopefully you found it by now. If not, I forgive you and uh, understand you have been in the Minor Prophets, so you know what's coming at least. Habakkuk is one that your Bibles probably don't fall open to naturally, right? They should, though. They should. There should be creases in Habakkuk. And my, one of my prayers is that there starts to be a renewed interest in this among you as you study and read Habakkuk and as I give you an overview of this book. Here's the situation. There is a tension in the book of Habakkuk. If you just read the very first few verses, which we'll do in a second, and then skip to the end of the book, read the last few verses, which we'll also do in a few minutes, you would notice that there's a question of how do those two things fit? How did he get, how did Habakkuk, this prophet, priest, how did he get from verse 1 and verse 2 of the first chapter to the end of the book? 
So let's, let's look at that for a section, because, for a situation, because there's a situation that's going on and then a resolution that Habakkuk lands on that almost seem incompatible. Here's the situation, chapter 1, verse 3 in particular. Look at it, the second half of verse 3, I'm going to skip to there. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of skipping in this sermon. We're going to jump all over Habakkuk. You're going to go, I, I can't remember where things are. Go back home, read the whole book through. It doesn't take you that long, and you'll kind of see some of these pieces fit together. But for the sake of this sermon, we're jumping around a lot. So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, the second half of that verse, here's what Habakkuk says as he looks out and surveys the state of the world in front of him. The situation is, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. There's the situation. Kind of bleak, right? Looking a little dark in that day. The last time I preached on Habakkuk was at the end of 2020. Not only was the pandemic still in full swing, if you remember that, it was a year to remember, wasn't it? Not only was the pandemic still in full swing, but my city, Minneapolis, was not quite literally, but still simmering, was almost on fire after the death of George Floyd. We were fighting about the role of police, and included in that, we were fighting about remote work or school or asynchronous days and synchronous days, which I'm still not really sure what those are. We were fighting about vaccination mandates. We were fighting about mask wearing, and pretty much anything else we could, we were fighting about, sometimes literally, in Minneapolis and in Oregon. Destruction. We saw it. Violence. It was before us. Strife was the norm. Contention all over the place. Hasn't completely moved on from that yet. That's, that's our situation, isn't it? Like we can say, yeah, I, I get where Habakkuk is at. Like that, if you watched the news this morning or last night, you probably found a little bit of destruction and violence, strife and contention. There's some of that going on in the world even as we speak. I noticed as I drove down here from Portland, I couldn't help but notice that uh, apparently there's an election happening in a few days. Um, it's not just in Minnesota. Um, if you didn't know that, um, I don't know how. Um, but uh, there's a little strife and contention around that, isn't there? Or, or are you guys in Oregon just all kind of peacefully getting along in some Eden-like paradise here? There's a little bit of con- You know, candidate A will say on one commercial that this other candidate is the cause of strife and contention. Because of him or her, you know, our country, our state, our county, our city, our school board, our homeowners association is caught in rampant destruction and violence because of that other candidate, and so you need to elect me. That's what candidate A will say, and then... The next commercial will be candidate B saying, because of candidate A, we have strife and contention. He or she will lead our country, our state, our county, our city, our school board, our neighborhood association to rampant destruction and violence. And so you come away from that and saying, whoever I vote for, apparently the world is just going to fall apart. Destruction and violence are before us. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk saw that when he surveyed the landscape in his day. We see similar things. Now, that's the situation. 
Let's feel the tension. Go to the end of the book, chapter 3. Chapter 3, specifically, verse 16. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Yet, you can almost connect the dots between those two sentences. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Do you feel that tension? Destruction, violence, strife, contention, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That is amazing, isn't it? And convicting. Look back a, a couple of one verse to see this last section of Habakkuk because it's just an, a beautiful poem. I, I said this in the first service. There's a lot of verses that Christians put on coffee mugs and T-shirts and bumper stickers that don't belong there. This one does, all right? This one, go get a coffee mug that has verses 17 through 19 on it and enjoy your coffee as you reflect on these verses because these are amazing. Here's what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Just just let that sink in a little bit. Because I hear that. You know what I ask? How? <laughs> How do you get there? How do you get there? What I did is I took some liberties and kind of paraphrased this section for 2022 and a little bit for Southern Oregon as well. So let me, um, let me just read this if it was written by Habakkuk right now, right here. Though the wrong candidate was elected, and though there is no fruit on the vines, I, I kept that one in there because it is Southern Oregon, so it seemed relevant. Um, Though gas prices jumped an extra $2 overnight, and I don't even want to know how much was spent on groceries this month. Though the rattle in the car won't go away, and the doctor said it'd be best if we talked in person, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If you're like me at all, you want some of that, don't you? All the time. It's beautiful, but it also, to me, it's a little like watching the NBA or professional sports. I'm like, man, that's really good. I want to be like that. And then sometimes there's something in the back of my head that says, you'll never be like that. Because that's not a description of my mentality during an election all the time. That's not a description of me when my car starts falling apart. What's your view of God when violence and corruption and suffering are rampant? Do you trust in the Lord, in the God of your salvation? Even more, do you take joy in the Lord? It's not easy. And so for some of you, you're going through that. And this is a very real passage for you. For some of you, you may not have these massive 
problems of violence and strife going on, but there's just some inconvenient hardships in your life. A few weeks ago, I was hunting with my son in northern Minnesota. We were trying to get some grouse and had some good success with that, but on the last day of our hunt, I got back to my truck and realized my phone was no longer in my pocket. And uh, phones are not cheap these days, right? And I was just... If there's ever a point where I question God's sovereignty, it's when I lose my phone. And if there's ever a point where I start to pray like God, like 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 never before, it's when I lose my phone. So I, I went back and I looked for it, and I'm, I'm questioning God's goodness and his mercy. I'm praying like I had never prayed before. I'm offering up all kinds of things to God, and the phone was not found, that inconvenient hardships. My daughter, between the services, told told me about one of the situations she had this uh, maybe a few months ago we have this we well we have this cat named Wanda um this cat that my daughters love um probably too much um but we have this cat and this cat is dearly dearly loved by almost everyone in our family um and one night the cat who is an indoor cat got out and didn't come back. She's done this before, but usually she comes back in a couple hours with all kinds of adventurous stories to tell, I'm sure. But she didn't come back. And um, it took us a day to realize that she was not in the house. And the next night she didn't come back. And so I remember this point where my daughters are just, and my wife is tearing up. Um, and there's tears, and we're praying as a family for Wanda to come back. She did. Thankfully, my phone, my phone, I lost. That's still somewhere in the woods in northern Minnesota. But those are the moments, right? Those little moments. They're, they're. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I won't get into the cat thing, but the phone thing is trivial, right? It's, it's really trivial in the big. But at the same point, I question God's sovereignty. And then when things really rough happen, I struggle to take joy in the Lord struggle in that. Our goal for our time this morning in Habakkuk is to allow God's Spirit through this short little book to guide us into a joy-filled faith, which is different than a joyless, begrudging acceptance or a fake naivete. Let me explain that a little bit. There is a type of faith that we sometimes conjure up that is a joyless, begrudging acceptance. We acknowledge God's control and God's sovereignty, but we question his goodness in that. It's a sad fatalism. Yes, God, you're in control, but I don't like it. There's another type of response that is a fake joy, almost a naivete, just put on the rose-colored glasses. It acknowledges God's goodness. Everything's going to work out. It's going to all be fine. It's going to be fine. But it doesn't wrestle with hard issues of providence. Sometimes the crops don't come in. Sometimes the phones don't show up miraculously. Joy-filled faith in times of suffering. What a goal. What a, what a picture that Habakkuk points to for us. 
Let me back up just a second and give you a little bit of the historical and geographical setting of Habakkuk in his time because it will help us understand how, how deep this was for Habakkuk. He hasn't lost a phone. He has much more significant issues going on. We actually don't have a lot of historical details specifically laid out in the book of Habakkuk. There's no setting info at the front end of the book. We just learned that it's Habakkuk the prophet, but we don't have a place or a time or a setting or a city or anything like that. But throughout the book, there's a lot of pointers towards that, and we can understand as you read the book what is actually happening, what time period this is uh, is going on in. There's a few hints of a future invasion of Judah by the Babylonians. That's going to come later. We'll see that in just a second. I'll I'll bring that out a little bit later. But at the beginning, there's not a lot of information given. What we do know is that Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah at the time, and Judah, this little country, was situated in a geographical location surrounded by big, powerful bad guys. All right. So to the south, you had Egypt, the once powerful country of Egypt, kind of on the wane now. Other countries are taking some of their territory, but still there and still um, still a presence to Israel's south. To the uh, north, you have the really bad guys of Assyria who have already conquered, probably have already conquered the northern part of Israel and are just evil, evil, evil people and threatening Judah now as they move towards the south and start to battle with Egypt. To the east of Assyria, across the desert, you have Babylon, who's a young guy, kind of coming up in the world a little bit, gaining some power and threatening Assyria from a second front. Further east of that, the Persians and the Medes are coming up, and they've got their own thing brewing that will come uh, about a, a few years later. To the west, the Greeks aren't really on the scene yet in this area, but they will. They're going to come through. They're going to mop up and take over this part of the world before too long. And even further to the west, you have the Romans, who after the Greeks kind of wane and go down in power, the Romans are going to come through, and they're going to take over this part of the world. So whether it's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Media, the Greeks or the Romans, there's a little Israel in the middle of it constantly being slaughtered. Israel is right in the middle of this. So the international situation for Israel is not rosy. It's hard. It's really difficult. And people are living in fear as they feel the Assyrian pressure and wonder about what is next after this. But even among that, internally, within the country, things are a mess. After the the kings Saul and David and Solomon had united the kingdom and established the kingdom of Israel, it quickly divided. Israel in the north was swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire, and Judah in the south continued through a cycle of bad king and bad king, horrendous king, fairly good king, bad king, worse king, straight-up evil king. Some of these kings are familiar to us. We know names like Josiah and Hezekiah. Others sound... Mysterious. We don't know much about Amon or Jehoahaz. Most of them were bad. Some of them were really bad. And for a sample of what Habakkuk had seen and was experiencing in his life as he wrote this little book, I want you to listen to 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, describing the reign of Manasseh. Summary first. Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight. In God's sight, Manasseh did what was evil. 
imitating the detestable practices of the pagan nations whom the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan altars his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed an Asherah pole, just as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed before all the forces of heaven and worshipped them. He even built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord said his name should be honored. He built those altars for all the forces of heaven in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the world's sight. So not only was Manasseh evil in the Lord's sight, he was evil in the world's sight. This is a bad, bad king, and he's ruling in Judah at the time. So externally, looking around, situation is pretty bleak for the Israelites. Internally, looking at kings like Manasseh, it doesn't get any better when you think about who is ascending to power in God's people, among God's people. In all of this, instead of covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, Judah, the people of Israel, created a virtual deity smorgasbord where they could pick and choose whatever deity fit their immediate needs. So rather than going to Yahweh, following, committing themselves to Yahweh, they struggled with infertility. Well, there's all kinds of fun fertility rites associated with the worship of Asherah. Let's give that a try. Looks like a bad harvest. Well, Baal might be able to help with that one. Let's, let's pray to him. Concerned about these enemy nations? Well, let's try sacrificing a few kids to Moloch. That was the situation within Israel. Internally, things are a mess with apostasy and wickedness. Externally, war seems to be on the horizon yet again as Judah is caught between Assyria and Egypt and coming soon, Babylon. Do you feel that? All right. That's where Habakkuk's at. And so he asks a question. Verse 2, Habakkuk 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Here's Habakkuk's first question. What in the world's going on, God? How can you tolerate this? Where are you? Why won't you do something? Evil is all over the place, internally and externally. And so Habakkuk prays for intervention. I'm crying out to you, God. Violence is violence. Do something. And you seem silent in the face of it. You've probably had times of prayer where that has been your feeling. Where are you, God? I want you to show up. Things are bad right now. We need you. There's no real answer. What Habakkuk wants is, is one of those deus ex machina moments in movies and books that you get where, like, coming out of the blue, the, the hero emerges and saves the day, right? Gandalf overhelms deep when just when things seem their bleakest, or Captain Marvel somehow showing up when the battle is almost lost and destroying Thanos and his army. That's what Habakkuk wants, is God, show up and crush our enemies, deal with evil, give us justice, fix the situation. And God answers. 
verse 5. God answers and says, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. This is getting good, isn't it? For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Pause there. Don't look ahead yet. Some of you can't help it, but pause there and just think how Habakkuk would respond. Here's the situation, God. Destruction, violence, strife, contention is just awful, awful. Come and fix everything. And God says, Habakkuk, I'm doing something in your day. You're not going to believe what's going to happen. And Habakkuk's just kind of anticipating, right? Great. I can't wait to see our enemies. I can't see, wait to see who God smites here, right? Verse 6. God says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The next few verses go on to describe the evils of Babylon, or the Chaldeans. So Habakkuk, where are you, God? What are you doing? God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians. And I can imagine Habakkuk hearing that and going, I don't like that answer, (laughs) right? I was kind of hoping you would get rid of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and, you know, these other empires who will come up later. And God says, I'm going to use them somehow. There's the tension again, the tension. You can feel that anticipation as he hears that God is going to do something and almost probably, if he's like me at all, a little disappointment that God isn't going to do what he wanted. And so Habakkuk brings his question and brings the people's question back to God in verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, right? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So here's what Habakkuk does. He acknowledges that God is in control, but he questions God's plan. He acknowledges that God is in control, but he questions God's goodness. Babylon is is evil. If you want to, if you want to do some some reading that was just kind of stomach churning, go look up what Assyria and Babylon did to nations that they conquered. It, it wasn't pretty, and they're coming, mercilessly killing nations forever. And so what Habakkuk says is, is this fair? Is this right, God? How how are these things compatible? You're good and sovereign, but you're using this plan. Is that like plan D and you, something didn't work out on A, B, and C? Because this, this is messed up, it seems. Show me, God, he says. He, said, he says this at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch point and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So God, tell me why you're doing it this way, because I don't like it. That's what Habakkuk's at at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Verse 2, chapter 2, the Lord answered me. Kind of a frightening verse when you have Habakkuk on his watchtower with his arms folded, wondering what God's going to say. God answers him. Chapter 2, 
is kind of a more traditional prophet passage. There's a lot of woes proclaimed upon people. And God's saying, I will bring justice both to those who, both to you, Israel, and to the Babylonians. Their day will come. Their judgment will come. Not right now, but it will come. My glory will be displayed. If you look forward to uh, chapter 2, verse 14, not only will the Babylonians be destroyed at one point, their doom is coming, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here's God saying, don't worry about it. One day I will deal with Babylon. One day my glory will be known throughout the entire world. Wait. Wait for it with faithfulness. Back to verse 4 of chapter 2. The righteous one will live by his faith. In fact, look, at, look back at chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And Habakkuk's like, well, yeah, but it seems like it's delaying. God God operates differently, right? Behold, their soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Be patient. Wait. Have faith. The Babylonians are condemned for their greed, for their violence, for their oppression, for their idolatry, among other things, throughout chapter 2. And Habakkuk is told that God's glory will fill the earth one day, and he is to wait for it. That's not easy, is it? That's not easy. For the earth, verse 14, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Example of those woes. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Their day will come. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory, Babylon. Their day will come. God's glory will will fill the earth. But then there's this matter of timing. Because God is saying there's something bigger going on than you can even understand, Habakkuk, right? He said that. You, you, you wouldn't understand if I told you that. He even said that to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, as he responds in chapter 3, as the, the book closes up, makes a plea first and then comes to that point of resolution that we saw earlier. His plea is found in verse uh, 2. After God says, their day will come, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember your mercy. There's his cry to God. Yes, you're just in bringing your wrath to rebellious, evil, sinful people. But remember, you're also a merciful God. Habakkuk continually acknowledges God's sovereignty, God's control, God's glory. Look at the end of verse 2. The Lord, or sorry, the end of chapter 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God sits on his throne. Habakkuk acknowledges God's sovereignty. 
He acknowledges God's justice and righteousness. He says wrath is deserved for the Assyrians, for the Babylonians, even for the people of Israel. But he calls out to God, in his wrath, remember mercy. And as he remembers God's character, as he remembers God's faithfulness and promises to his people, he comes to that amazing, beautiful resolution at the end of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, though the Assyrians come from the north, and the Babylonians from the east, and maybe even the Egyptians from the south, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Here's what this is not. This is not just quietly waiting in faith. Because there's something attached to it. Joy. It's not just, okay, God, do what you want. I'll just get us out of here eventually and I'll wait. It's joy. Sometimes when, when we Christians talk about God's sovereignty and plan that we can't understand, we react with, with a shrug, like, all right, God's in charge. I guess I just got to deal with it. Habakkuk winds up reacting to God's sovereignty with a smile on his face. Do you react to God's sovereignty with a shrug or with a smile? Do you take joy in the God of your salvation? Sometimes we have this quiet, begrudging acceptance. Yes, God is in control. God does what he pleases. God is over all things, but I don't really like it, so I'm just going to sit here and kind of grumble. And that can be the state of the church described right now. We're just going to grumble because we don't like what God is doing. We don't understand it. God, and God never promises to give us the answers. But we're just going to grumble about it. Instead, Habakkuk, whose situation is much worse than ours, right? Habakkuk lands on this hope-filled, eager, expectant, joyful anticipation. He smiles in the face of suffering. Because the Lord is his salvation. I don't know any of your situation. I'm a guest here. Never been here before. My first night in Roseburg, Oregon was last night, so I can't speak into your situation. But I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, are facing something where you kind of question God's sovereignty. Did God make a mistake? I don't want to admit that. I especially don't want you know any of our pastors to know I'm thinking through that right now. But... That doesn't seem good of God. Though, fill in the blank, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. A few weeks ago, my wife, or sorry, a few days ago, my wife and I went into a Starbucks uh, to get some coffee in the afternoon. I was looking forward to my afternoon coffee and so we went to Starbucks and she walked in and this was the day that Starbucks put up all their holiday stuff so you got the red and the snowflakes and all this kind of stuff and they've got the new drinks out and all that kind of Christmas holiday whatever just everywhere in Starbucks and my wife goes in and she loves 
Christmas. She loves the holiday season in general. She loves Christmas and she goes in, sees all the decorations. She's like, oh, and just this, I mean, she just lights up. She kind of gets on her toes a little bit, jumps around, claps her hands even a little bit and just, you know, just feels this energy from her. Hope-filled, joyful, eager expectation. That's her this time of year. She's looking forward to Christmas. She can't wait. I go in. I'm a little different than my wife. We have some different personalities. Uh, I go in and I see that. And I'm like, oh. okay, I guess we got to deal with this for the next two months. Most of us, when it comes to God, maybe resemble Josh's reaction in Starbucks more than Mary Ann's. Okay, I'll deal with this until he gets me out of here. Rather than that joy-filled, beautiful, expectant faith we are called to have. Joyful faith does not come when you know all of the why answers to what God is doing. You will not know all the answers. Joyful faith comes in knowing and trusting God over all things. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes we have this default assumption that God is a God of karma, right? Be good, and God will do good to you. Be bad, and God will do bad things to you. Well, this doesn't really describe the God of the Bible. It describes a nightmare Santa who is checking his list. Um, but if you have that karma God in mind, that's how God operates, you'll, you'll struggle when you face adversity or suffering or difficulty. Because that means either you're really bad and deserve this, which may be true, or God is unfair and potentially powerless in his dealing with rebellion because, you know, you think you're good and you don't deserve this. Neither one of those are the answers that the Bible gives us. God simply does not give out the reason for all the hard things. He gives the big reason of a world filled with sin and suffering, but that reason for that situation, which Habakkuk wanted to know, was never given. God's going to do something with this, but the specifics never come out. God doesn't always dole out specific reasons for every good or bad thing that happens to us. Bad people in this world do profit sometimes, and they do succeed sometimes. But it will be temporary. Good people, faithful people, suffer Sometimes, but it too will be temporary. Pandemics linger. Inflation happens. Cars break down. People get sick and die. And we don't always know why. You won't get the answer to all of those. Rarely do we discover specific reasons for God's difficult providence. It's tough providence. But here's what we do discover, and what Habakkuk discovered in this book. We may not get the answers, but we do get God. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 20 again. Read it before. After describing the evils of Babylon, compared to them, it's just everything's just, it's awful. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And that's what leads Habakkuk to be able to say in chapter 3, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Not because I understand what's going on in the world or in our country or in my own life, but because God is holy. He rules over all things. Listen, we may know a theological truth about God's superiority and sovereignty. We may know and trust in his promises about his glory filling the earth at the end. But living by faith in the day-to-day struggles of life, whether big struggles like Babylonian invasion or little struggles like losing your phone, that's where our weakness is exposed. And while God does tell us his character, he does show us his power, he tells us his promises of the future, he does not always tell us why we lose our phones. He doesn't tell us why your position was downsized. He doesn't tell us why your car broke down during the storm of all times. He doesn't tell us why you were rejected by that person. But he does tell us he's in his holy temple. He's ruling over all things. Keep silent before him. I used to love watching this old house with my dad. My dad likes to fix things, and sometimes he gets into situations like in this old house where he can't quite fix it. And so it's fun to watch those shows where you've got to transform you know, some old house into something great and beautiful. But there's a point in those episodes, whether it's some of the new shows on uh, HDTV or the old ones that I like with Norm Abram. Norm, what's his name? Is it Abrams? Yeah, um, there's a point in that episode where where the homeowner has is is freaked out because something something unexplainable happened. We got to tear out that wall. There's we found something in the basement. Whatever it is, there's that moment of like, oh no, is it? Can it? Do we? Really, can I really trust this designer or this contractor to do what needs to be done? In the moment, there's a struggle to trust the one who says he knows what's going on. It's easy to trust them at the front of a project when they lay out a grand, beautiful plan and say, look, at the, in the future you're going to have all this. It's easy to trust them when the project's done. You look back and say, look, at that kitchen looks really nice. But when they say, we got to tear out that wall, <sighs> can we skip that part? That's the way it is with us so often. It's fairly easy to trust God when we look at his promises, what will happen? The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Hallelujah. I can look back on my life and trust him for hard things in the past. In the moment, when my phone's gone, do I trust God? In the moment, when the guy you wanted to win didn't win in two days, do you trust God? We live by faith, which is a central truth, in the book of Habakkuk. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We live by faith in that end, that our faith, our faith is that God's glory will be known and experienced. That's the end of our faith, but here's the critical question. Where is the object of our faith? In what or in whom do we place our faith? Do we place it in a candidate or a party? Do we perhaps... Place it in a team? Do we fit, perhaps place our faith in where our kids are at and what they're doing? What the bottom line of our business is? Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Paul, 
takes that little phrase, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, as he's writing to the Galatians and telling them where their faith should not be, don't put it in the law, don't put it in yourselves, the righteous shall live by faith. Kind of wonder, well, faith in what? Where do I put that faith? And Paul, in Galatians, gives us the answer. In Galatians 3, Paul quotes that passage, but earlier he has given us the object of faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, three times Paul says in that little section of Scripture that faith is in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. We believed in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ. Our faith, our trust, our hope is in Jesus, who even when things seem bleakest, was accomplishing our greatest good. And when things seem bleak for you, is still in it for your good. Knowing God's sovereign plan of salvation in Jesus Christ for his glory leads us to joy-filled faith no matter the circumstances. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's a battle though, isn't it? You fight that battle every hour of every day to take joy in the God of your salvation. One of the interesting things about Habakkuk is the meaning of the name Habakkuk. Um, the meaning of the name Habakkuk can mean a couple different similar things. One option is that it means one who embraces, or you know, if we want to give it a term, a hugger. <laughs> um, interesting phrase, but alternatively, it can mean one who wrestles. And you can kind of see, well, that makes sense, you know, uh, why those two phrases could both mean, or why that meaning could be one of those two phrases. One who wrestles. Many have written about Habakkuk and talked about his wrestling with God, his struggle with finding joy in difficult circumstances. Fittingly, the tough journey to joy-filled faith is something that we will wrestle with all our life. But here's more good news for you. We do not wrestle alone. We do not wrestle alone. At one point, I was thinking about using a tag team illustration here. It just doesn't work because we don't even wrestle on our own power. God's Spirit is with us. God has placed us in a body of believers to have people alongside us in that journey. And so as we stare hard circumstances or inconvenient things, we have people who love us. We have God's presence among us, pointing us to the glory of His Son, whose glory will one day fill the earth. And so we live by faith. We live by faith to take joy in the God of our salvation. God, in his mercy, has sent his spirit to inhabit his people and his church. God is with us in this journey. Christ is our Savior, and we are with each other in this journey. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world. You call us to sometimes seemingly impossible things, but you also provide for us. You provide Christ as our sacrifice, as our Savior, as the forgiver of our sins. And you also provide your Spirit as our comforter to give us strength. And you provide us with the church. So we have brothers and sisters who point us to joy in the Lord no matter the circumstances. So I pray for this church, 
that it would be known as a joy-filled, faithful church, full of joy-filled, faithful people, who even when they don't agree with what's happening or like what's happening or are struggling with what's happening, find joy in the God of their salvation. Lord, you have given us much to be joyful for. Make us happy Christians. In Christ's name we pray. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.